Our scripture for today is Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 to 23. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I, I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of, place, of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even, with, even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Church is the word of God. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Harvest. You can have a seat. Good morning, everyone. How are we doing this morning? What a great day to be alive. Well, Harvest, this morning we have done it. We have come to the end of our study of Philippians, and I hope, as it has been for me, that it has been a great series for you. I want to start this morning by asking you if you recognize these lyrics. I can't get no satisfaction. I can't get no satisfaction. Because I try and I try and I try and I try. I can't get no. I can't get no. When I'm driving in my car, when a man come on the radio, he's telling me more and more about some useless information supposed to fire my imagination. When I'm watching my TV and a man comes on and tells me how white my shirts can be, but he can't be a man because he don't smoke the same cigarettes as me. I can't get no satisfaction. I try and I try and I try and I try and I can't get no. I can't get no. Rolling Stones, 1965. You know, we have worked through this letter, this tremendous letter, the book of Philippians, and we've seen Paul stress on unity, joy, and peace. What better way to capstone the series than on the topic of true satisfaction? This morning, I want to submit to you four characteristics of true satisfaction. So if you're ready, say go. Verse 10. Paul writes, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Harvest, the first characteristic of a satisfied Christian is this, contentment. Your first point, the satisfied Christian chooses 
contentment. The satisfied Christian chooses contentment. We've come all the way through the book of Philippians, and now we hit Paul's thank you note. I told you when we started the series that one of the reasons Paul wrote the book of Philippians was to thank them for the monetary gift by Epaphroditus that was brought to him. But if you look at verse 10, at first glance, it kind of seems like Paul's comments are less than genuinely grateful. Do you write thank you notes like this? Do you write thank you notes at all? I mean, it's kind of a dying art, isn't it? But he starts off his thank you note and he says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. It almost sounds like he's saying, thanks for finally thinking about me. Is that what he's saying? Interestingly enough, relationships in the first century were tricky. Can we just be honest? Relationships in any century are tricky. But there were certain cultural expectations between people back in Paul's day. And giving gifts or doing favors for someone often placed obligations on the receiver. If you gave a gift to someone in the first century, it was expected that they would give you something in return. Also, there were appropriate and inappropriate times and ways to say thank you. Social status was big in the first century, and if you were given a gift by someone on an equal status as yourself, saying thank you was actually inappropriate. Whereas, if someone of a higher social standing gave you a gift, then you would bestow honor on that person by saying thank you or giving some sort of praise. So you see, Paul's in a little bit of a predicament. He's been given this monetary gift by the Philippians, which means he has to navigate his expression of thanks so that he doesn't miscommunicate. Paul does not want to give the impression that he sees them as superior to himself, but neither does he want to apply any kind of offense by not saying thank you. So he has to say thank you without quite saying thank you. So he says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have, you, have you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Now, it wasn't that the Philippian church had forgotten about Paul. It wasn't like they were like, oh yeah, Paul, we got to remember him. In fact, in the first century, complaints about not having communication from someone was actually taken as a sign of affection. It's the way they wrote back then. So if they said something like, hey, I haven't heard from you in a while, that was their way of saying, I miss you. So he acknowledges that they have always been concerned for him, for him, but they had no opportunity. In other words, they didn't have a way to express their concern. And we don't know why exactly. Perhaps Paul's imprisonment had something to do with that. But for whatever reason, we're not sure why they, they couldn't express their concern for him. And now, finally, for whatever reason, they've been able to do so. And by the way, this isn't the first time that the Philippians have supported Paul financially. He talks about that a little bit later on. So he acknowledges the gift in verse 10, but then in verse 11 he says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Now again, it seems like his comment is a little less than genuine. He says, not that I'm, be not that I'm speaking of being in need. It almost sounds like he's got the attitude of, I didn't need your gift. But that's not what he's saying. Again, he's being very careful with his words. He's expressing thanks, but not in a way that he implies he wants more. He's not in the ministry 
for the money, in other words. So he's careful to speak words that communicate to them he doesn't want more, or he's being care- and sorry, he's being careful not to place himself in their debt. He's making it clear that he appreciates the gift, he's not expecting more, and he's not communicating that he intends to pay them back as the culture of the day would have dictated. He's keeping himself in a very neutral place here. He's navigating his words well, but he also is taking an opportunity to point out a Christian truth, the necessity for contentment. Paul's a preacher. He can't just say thank you without turning it into a sermon, and that's what he's doing here. The scriptural truth that he wants to impart to them is contentment. He builds it up in verse 12. Read with me. I know how to be brought low and how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Delicately expressing his thanks and then assures them that he can live with any type of circumstance. He says, I know how to be brought low. That's poverty, by the way. That's having nothing but dirt. I know how to be brought low. And if you've read the life of Paul, you know that many times he had absolutely nothing. But he also says, I know how to abound. And that's to live with all of his needs met. And by the way, for Paul, knowing where his next meal came from was abounding. For Paul, if dinner was covered... That was abounding. If Luke came to him and said, hey, Paul, dinner's covered tonight. Great. What about tomorrow? No idea. But tonight, dinner's covered, and that was his abundant life. So he knows God will provide, and he has learned the secret, he calls it, of facing plenty and hunger. The secret to facing plenty and hunger. Let's talk about that, plenty and hunger, just for a minute. First, let's talk about hunger, because I think facing hunger would be hard. And I would dare say that probably almost no one in this room has truly faced hunger. Sure, you've been hungry, but have you truly faced hunger with nothing to eat? Maybe you've done a couple three-day fast. Admirable. So you know what hunger feels like, but I'll warrant even in that time there was food in your cupboards. There was access to it. And maybe I'm misspeaking here. Maybe there is someone in this room who knows what it's like to truly face hunger. I think that would be difficult. Facing hunger would be hard. What about facing plenty? Anybody have lunch plans? You've got plenty. You really do. And we think to ourselves, well, that would be easy. Is it easy to face plenty with a heart turned to the Lord? Think about it. Which would be difficult? Which would be more difficult? To turn to the Lord when you're hungry or when you're full? What does the author of Proverbs 30 say? You can read this on the screen. Proverbs 38 and 9 say, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Of course, it's hard to be content when hungry, but it's, but it's also difficult when we have plenty because we are always wanting more. That's the society we live in. We live in a society that has plenty. Americans have plenty, but we are always striving for more because we can't get no satisfaction. Facing hunger with faith in the Lord is tough, but I'll warrant facing plenty 
with the same trust in the Lord is just as tough, if not tougher. And I've got to wonder if Paul's claim to know how to face plenty isn't more impressive than his ability to face hunger. Can you choose contentment even though you have plenty? How do we do it? How does Paul do it? What's this big secret? He says, I have learned the secret. What's this big secret, Paul? How do we face these two different circumstances? Well, back up with me in verse 11. He says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Jesus Christ. Paul's secret to facing hunger and facing plenty was none other than Jesus Christ. You see, Paul didn't follow some, you know, five steps to contentment plan. He didn't read the latest book on finding contentment in a first century world. He found it in the person of Jesus Christ. The word there, I can do all things through him, really should be translated in. It really should be translated in him. Paul had reached a place where he could be content in every situation because he was in Christ. Now, the idea of being in Christ, that's a very common description of the believer in the New Testament. I've got some verses to share with you. They're going to be on the screen. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Colossians 2, 10. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I can do all things through or in him who strengthens me. When you accepted Jesus Christ as your savior, you became in him. You became in him, which means this, that same secret that Paul had in facing plenty and facing hunger, you have too. You have that same secret. You might be wondering, well, then why don't I face these things as well as Paul did? Because I'll warrant, and I'm guilty of this as well, that you don't access it. It's one thing to have a secret. It's another thing to access the secrets. Paul was content in all circumstances. Now, the idea, I can do all things, I really feel like I need to address that because some people have used that uh, wrongly. It's not a blanket statement for you to be able to do anything you want to do. I can do all things is not like the Christian's blank check to do anything simply because Christ is in us. The all things part means I can face anything God calls me to do. That's what that means. It doesn't mean I can accomplish anything I want to do. It means I can accomplish anything he wants me to do. That's the qualifier, and that's what the verse means, and that's what being in Christ is all about. Christ strengthens me to accomplish his work. The key to contentment is yielding to Christ and the work that he wants me to do, and that is what satisfies See, going after everything I want, that doesn't satisfy. Even though my heart of flesh tells me it does, I want to go after everything I want to do. And my heart tells me if you do that, you'll be satisfied. But what's the problem? The problem is 
That when I go out doing everything I want to do, it feeds the cavernous void within me that constantly wants more. And I can't get no satisfaction. Only when I yield to Christ can I reach contentment and there I find true satisfaction. Christ strengthens me to do his work. So then you might ask the question, what's his work? What's the work that he's called us to do? Part of the work that God has called us to do, and you know this, it's the same thing that our church is all about, make disciples. Part of what God has called you to do is to make disciples. Harvest Decatur exists to make mature disciples who worship, walk, and work for Christ. That's what our church is about, and that's what our lives are about. Now, how that plays out in your life might be different than how it plays out in my life, but the goal is the same. God wants us to make disciples. That's part of his work. What else? What else is his work? I like how George mentioned last week that there were several things that are written in Scripture as God's will for you. Things like abstaining from sexual sins, rejoicing always, praying without ceasing. That's God's work for you. And no, they may not be easy things to do, and they may not be easy things to avoid. And that's why we lean on Christ's strength. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. He strengthens. Now, what's he strengthening here? When he says he strengthens me, he's going to make me like Samson? That'd be nice. But no, that's not what he's saying here. He's giving strength to the inner self. Ephesians 3 actually talks about this. Ephesians 3 tells us that we are strengthened with power through his spirit in our inner being. Our inner being, what is that? That's the place where the Holy Spirit works. That's the place where God wants to transform you. That's the place where we talked a few weeks ago that God wants to transform your thinking. That's the inner self. By the way, that inner self is also the place where we strive against the Lord where we fight against the Holy Spirit because we're after our own satisfaction and not what Christ can give. He wants to strengthen you in your inner being so that you too can reach a point where you can say, I am satisfied because I am content in whatever situation I face because I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I want to pause just a second and ask you this question. How have you been resisting Christ? The situation that you're facing right now. The relationship that's causing you angst. The circumstance that feels overwhelming. The temptation you know you need to flee that thing that God wants you to do in obedience to him. How are you resisting? How is your inner self resisting the work of the Holy Spirit? The answer, of course, is to yield to Christ. He wants to do the work in you. And the answer is to yield to Christ. I want to pause, and I just want to invite you for just a few moments in the quietness of your heart right now, yield to Christ. Whatever's going on, whatever's got your mind, whatever's got your heart, let's just take a moment, and I'm going to give you that time to yield to him right now.
we're looking at four characteristics of the satisfied Christian. The first one was choosing contentment. The second is this. The satisfied Christian thinks of others above self. The satisfied Christian thinks of others above self. Pick it up with me in verse 14. Yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that at the beginning of the gospel when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Paul leaves his conversation on contentment there, and he comes back to his thank you note, and he responds how kind it was that they gave. Now, something we, we need to remember, we're dealing with an honor-shame culture here. To give a gift was supposed to bring honor to the giver. If you gave a gift, it was to bring honor to yourself, was part of the motive behind that. But Paul's in chains. Their gift to him, being in such a lowly position, put them at risk of being shamed. The word for kind there in verse 14 It's more than just being kind. It means to do what is right. So he's saying, you did well to share in my trouble by risking shame for those around you. He goes on to say in verse 15, and you Philippians yourselves know that at the beginning of the gospel, you see that the beginning of the gospel, that's simply a reference to when the church of Philippi was was started. The beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Now, this is interesting. It harkens back to something Paul said in chapter 1 when he was talking to the Philippians about their partnership with him in the gospel. Do you remember when we studied the way, way back whenever we started this series? Church of Philippi had a unique relationship with Paul. There was mutual giving and receiving unlike his relationship with any of the other churches. Now, we don't know why that is. He's talking about some details here that we really don't know about, leaving Macedonia and when he was in Thessalonica. But at some point during Paul's ministry, the Philippians were giving these monetary gifts to him and supporting him, and he didn't have that kind of relationship with any other church. So he's thanking them, but again, he's being very careful to use his words respectfully as the cultural norms of the day would have dictated. And he wraps this up in verse 17. He says, not that I seek the gift but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Paul's stating clearly here that he's not in the relationship with the Philippians to get something out of it. He's completely selfless in his relationship with them. In fact, there's all kinds of selfless acts going on here. The Philippians are selflessly giving and supporting Paul, while Paul is selflessly accepting the gift but making it clear, this is not why I'm in the relationship. In fact, verse 17 shows us that he's more concerned that the gift increases their fruit. That's a reference to their spiritual growth. Paul rejoices because the giving of the gift is evidence that God is growing them. And that's what he rejoices about. By the way, there's there's evidence to suggest that many of the people who attended the church at Philippi lived in poverty. So all the more reason... Paul is rejoicing because this shows that they are completely relying on the Lord to provide and choosing to support Paul with whatever finances they have. They're thinking of Paul. Paul's thinking of them. They're supporting him. He's rejoicing that the gift benefits them spiritually. Everyone's thinking of each other. 
And that's the beauty of this relationship. Mutual concern for each other. And true friendship does not seek what it can gain, but what it can give. Think of others above self. During my freshman year of college, I was in my room one afternoon and the phone rang. And this was back when phones had these things that connected to the wall. Anybody remember those? So I was in my room and the phone rang and I picked it up and it was my best friend from high school. I had moved several thousand miles away to go to college and I hadn't talked to him in a while. And when I heard his voice, I got excited. I was going to catch up with my best friend. I literally kicked back and I was expecting a very enjoyable phone call. But after a few sentences, I knew something was wrong. And he proceeded to tell me about his parents' sudden divorce. And instead of the enjoyable phone conversation I expected, I just ended up grieving with my friend. He needed me, and I was there with him, there for him. Think of others. I want to leave this point with this thought. Be concerned for others, but just like Paul was in verse 17, be concerned for one another's spiritual welfare. You know, we need to meet each other's physical needs. Absolutely. We need to be helpful. But above that, we need to be concerned about their spiritual growth. Can I challenge you to pray for each other and pray this. Pray that the fruit of the Spirit would ripen in each other's lives. I don't discourage you from sharing physical needs. Share physical needs, absolutely. And when you're going through a season, a tough season, let me challenge you to ask God, what is he wanting to teach me? How is he wanting to grow me spiritually? And when you share your prayer requests for physical things, share that as well. I'm going through this tough season. Our family's going through this right now, and we think God might be trying to grow this in our lives, so pray for us. When I was in junior high, I used to go to a camp, Camp Pearl, Louisiana. The director of that camp, he made an impression on me, and I remember him challenging us one time, and he said, when you talk to people and ask them how they're doing, ask them, how are you doing spiritually? That captures the essence of what's going on here. Paul writes in verse 17, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. So we're talking about the satisfied Christian. The satisfied Christian chooses contentment. The satisfied Christian thinks of others above self. Thirdly, the satisfied Christian trusts in God's provision. The satisfied, satisfied Christian trusts in God's provision. Look at verse 18. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. That phrase there, I have received full payment, that was a standard way of saying paid in full back then. If you owed something to somebody and you paid it back, they would often write a document that said, I have received full payment, paid in full. And so what Paul is essentially doing here is he's giving them a receipt for the gift, but then he flips it. He flips it from being a business transaction to being an offering. He uses Old Testament language to compare their gift to a sacrifice, an act of worship. In the Old Testament, to offer up an animal was costly. 
Animals were their way of life back then. And to kill a perfectly healthy animal just to throw it on an altar and burn it didn't make any sense. Unless, of course, it was an act of worship. When we choose to think of someone else by giving up something costly like money, time, energy, material things, that's an act of worship and it's pleasing to God and God will provide for whatever needs we have. That's what the Philippians did, and Paul wants to assure them that their act will not be overlooked. He says in verse 19, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Verse 19, Paul assures them God will supply whatever they need, and this must have been comforting to those especially who were in poverty. Now, because of the cultural norms of the day, Paul, in a secular situation, would have been expected to somehow pay the Philippians back for their gift. But he's in no position to do so. He's in chains. He can't reciprocate, so what does he do? He does something better. He assures them that God will provide for their needs. And God's provision will far exceed anything that they need. You know, God will certainly provide for their material needs, absolutely. But God's going to do even more than that. He's going to provide for their spiritual needs. He will supply every need of theirs in his riches, in glory, in Christ Jesus. Now, that's a reference to God's inexhaustible spiritual wealth. Of course, he's going to supply physically, but he's also going to supply spiritually. And what God gives is so much greater than we can imagine. God will enrich them with his invaluable spiritual wealth. Ephesians 1.3 reads this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. God blesses with the physical. God blesses with the spiritual. Now, because it was such a concern on them, I want to take a moment to address the material needs. Because let's face it, when we're in that moment of material needs, they feel urgent, do they not? They feel urgent. And in those moments, let me challenge you to go to chapter 4, verse 19, and claim it as a promise. Yes, it was a promise specifically to the church at Philippi, but by extension, we the church, this is a promise to us as well. And I believe we can say that because Scripture tells us in other places that God will provide. Read these verses with me. They'll be on screen. Psalm 145, 15 through 16. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. Matthew 6, 31 and 32. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Matthew seven eleven. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts, give good things to those who ask him? God will provide. And the satisfied Christian trusts in God's provision. The unsatisfied Christian will fret over where are these things going to come from. But the satisfied Christian trusts that God's going to provide what they need. Now, just a couple words on those. You know, don't think 
that God's provision means he's going to drop a million dollars in your lap. Don't think that God is just going to simply provide exactly what you need and drop it from the sky some miraculous way. He might do something miraculous. We have stories of God doing that in our lives, and I'm sure you do too, but we've had times, and you probably have too, where the way God has provided has not been, quote-unquote, miraculous, but has simply been sensible. In 2004, I find myself, found myself without a job. I'd been working at a company on a temporary basis with the understanding that it would, be, would become full-time, but that didn't pan out. I ended up working three part-time jobs. Heather was working, and things were tight. And I was also exhausted because I was working a various amount of schedules, and I was sleeping whenever I could, and our situation was not sustainable. Now, I cannot say in good conscience that I was totally satisfied in my inner being during that time, but Heather and I did look to the Lord, and we knew that he was going to provide. He knew that he was going to get us out of this unsustainable situation, and he did with one phone call. One phone call changed everything. Early one morning, I was luckily enough to be sleeping at the time, I got a call from ADM offering me a full-time job with a steady schedule. Well, steady-ish. I mean, it is ADM. But God provided. God provided. Did he provide by just sending us money from the sky? No, he provided in a sensible way. The satisfied Christian trusts in God's provision. Let's read Paul's closing statements. Verse 21, greet every Christian in Christ Jesus, every saint, excuse me, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Final verses of our study. Now this, Paul's following a standard type of close for the first century letters This is the way people would close, you know, greet so-and-so or so-and-so greets you, that kind of thing. And Paul sends his greetings to them. He sends greetings from those who are specifically with him, possibly Timothy or Luke or people like that. And then he sends greetings from all the saints, which is probably a reference to the church at Rome. And then he greets from those specifically in Caesar's household. You may remember from chapter 1, Paul had told us that the gospel had been advanced so much so that through the whole imperial guard, they were hearing of Jesus Christ. He reminds them of that. This is what the gospel is doing. People within Caesar's own home are getting saved, which, by the way, if you remember, Paul could not have done unless he was in chains. Lastly, Paul writes this. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ Be with your spirit. Now, that may seem like an easy verse to overlook. We read that, and you might even be tempted to think, well, that's sweet. But it's more than that. And we should stop and take it in. Read it with me again. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So I have one final point this morning. The satisfied Christian depends on God's grace. 
The satisfied Christian depends on God's grace. We need grace like we need air. Grace is God's unmerited favor. It's completely undeserved. It is the resource that saints need, not just for salvation, but for sanctification. Grace is the adhesive that we must have from God and for each other or the Christian life falls apart. John MacArthur writes this. Believers are not only saved by grace, but also sustained by grace. They are governed by grace, guided by grace, kept by grace, strengthened by grace, sanctified by grace, and enabled by grace. They are constantly dependent on the forgiveness, comfort, peace, joy, boldness, and instruction that come through God's grace. The satisfied Christian depends on God's grace because to depend on anything else would be trying to earn what cannot be earned. To work for what is freely given. Even in my sanctification, if I am trying to earn God's pleasure, then all I'm really doing is operating out of fear. If I'm not resting in God's grace, then what drives me is not dependence on God, but dependence on self. And that does not lead to satisfaction. That leads to constant anxious toil. Because I'm not sure if I've done enough. I'm not sure if I've obeyed enough. I'm not sure I'm good enough. And the ironic thing is, of course, I have not done enough. I can't obey enough, and I'm not good enough, which is why I need God's grace. That's why it's his unmerited favor. How is the, tr- the Christian truly satisfied? Before Jesus died, he said these words. It is finished. What was finished? Well, Christ's work was done. Sin was atoned for. Prophecy fulfilled, the law satisfied, God's wrath appeased, and Satan defeated. It all happened at the cross. Christian, your Savior did the work. Rest in that. I can't get no satisfaction. That's the theme of every human who doesn't choose contentment who doesn't think of others, who doesn't trust in God's provision, and who doesn't depend on God's grace. In short, the one who is not satisfied is not looking to the one who satisfies. Layla Naylor Morris was a gospel songwriter in the late 1800s, early 1900s. She penned these words. These will be on screen. Nothing satisfies but Jesus Bread of life to mortals given. May his presence now refresh us like the morning dew from heaven. Since I heard the voice of Jesus, since mine eyes beheld the King, all my love, my heart's affection, all I have to him I bring. With his joy my heart is thrilling, all my hope in him I see. Doubt and gloom and fear dispelling Christ is all in all to me. Give me Jesus, give me Jesus. Take the world, but give me Jesus. 
to satisfy with every blessing his love and peace, my soul possessing, to all beside my heart replies, there's naught but Jesus satisfies. Let's pray. Jesus, you are enough. You satisfy every need. You paid the penalty so that we can find true satisfaction. You took what was meant for us. I come with nothing but a heart of sin. And you, Jesus, place on me, place on us your righteousness. Lord, I confess, and I'm sure that everyone in this room can confess, there have been times this week I have striven to satisfy myself only to have been left empty. Help us focus our eyes on you. To choose to contentment, think of others, trust your provision, and depend on your grace. You satisfy Jesus. And we thank you in your awesome name.